Uh, welcome to the first day of the second session of the Aspen Ideas Festival. My name is Sasha Skoblik. I'm the editor of the Aspen Idea magazine, which is free, and you should all check it out. Uh, today, I'm going to introduce this session, but I have one programming note. Uh, tomorrow morning at 7.45, uh, the outgoing director of the Office of Management and Budget, Peter Orzag, is going to be giving a talk with uh, CNBC's Maria Bartiromo. So that's 7.45 tomorrow morning, so... Be alert. <laughs> um, another programming note is that our moderator today is going to be giving a book talk the following day, Saturday, at 7.45 a.m. So our moderator today is David Sanger. He is the Washington Bureau Chief of the New York Times. Additionally, he has been twice on a reporting team with the New York Times that has won the Pulitzer. His latest book is The Inheritance. He'll be giving a book talk about that at the Limelight Lodge Saturday morning at 7.45, followed by a book signing. So I encourage you all to go to that. And without any further ado, I give you David Sanger and Deputy Secretary of State James Steinberg. Well, thanks very much. Uh, it's great to be here, and it's particularly good to be here with Deputy Secretary Steinberg. Um, I first met Jim Steinberg when he was in the Clinton administration as Deputy National Security Advisor, and uh, then uh, he was um, uh, off in, uh, in Texas uh, for a while as the dean of the, the Johnson School of Public Affairs. And uh, I have found over the years that he is always one of the most insightful, interesting, and creative thinkers about American foreign policy. Um, to, this morning, we thought we would discuss the uh, president's nuclear uh, agenda. Uh, this is a president who I think has probably, I think it's fair to say, has come in with uh, a deeper and um, more, in some ways, radical thought about how to deal with America's nuclear arsenal uh, than any American president since, uh, since Harry Truman uh, became president. He is the first president to come in with a discussion of moving toward um, a period of zero nuclear weapons, even though the president frequently reminds everybody that it likely will not happen in his lifetime. Uh, but it does change the entire way that you think about nuclear strategy. And so uh, this morning, what we wanted to do was um, uh, ask uh, the deputy secretary to talk a bit about the different pillars of the president's uh, strategy, and then talk about some of the hardest cases, Iran, North Korea, Pakistan, Israel, um, all of the, the areas that are likely over the next few years to be truly dramatic tests of how this new strategy uh, works, uh, works out. So um, let me start uh, uh, first, uh, Jim, with the question, as you look at these three pillars, um, tell us what you think is very different from the way the Bush administration and even the Clinton administration addressed this issue and where you think you are 18 months into the process. Well, thanks, David. And I think the, the right place to start is really with the observation that you made, which is that uh, President Obama came into office with a very strong commitment on this agenda. I think if you go back and look during the campaign, this was one of the biggest themes that he stressed in terms of what he saw as his priorities uh, on becoming president, that he saw the, uh, the problem of nuclear weapons and nuclear proliferation as the biggest danger to the United States and needed a comprehensive strategy. I think it's important to recognize that there are two different 
dimensions of the threat and the risk here, something you know. Well, I've written about both of them. One, of course, is the traditional threat of uh, states that do not now have nuclear weapons acquiring nuclear weapons, the so-called horizontal proliferation to new states and the danger that as the numbers increase that the risk of nuclear war will increase. Uh, some of you will recall back in the early 1960s, uh, President Kennedy predicted that in a matter of a decade or two that there would be 20 or more nuclear uh, powers, and that had not happened uh, for a variety of reasons, but we seem to be on the verge of a new uh, degree of horizontal proliferation with Iran, North Korea, and others. So that traditional fear of, of new states acquiring nuclear weapons, the instability and the risk of nuclear war, coupled with the more 21st century threat of the danger that non-state actors, particularly terrorist groups, would acquire nuclear materials, nuclear know-how, and be able to use uh, makeshift nuclear weapons or even stolen nuclear weapons uh, in ways that provoke especially great danger because many of the things that had led to relative nuclear peace for a long time, deterrence and the, the, the strategies that had been developed during the Cold War, didn't seem to apply to nihilistic terrorist-type groups. So the, the, these two combinations from the president's perspective put the, the problem of nuclear proliferation and nuclear uh, weapons right at the top of our uh, national agenda. As you said, he's, I think, conceptualized this as having three pillars, and he laid this out in a very important speech that he gave in Prague in April of, of 2009. The three elements are, one, the need to strengthen the nonproliferation treaty, the treaty that uh, has signed by almost all the countries in the world um, that basically says that uh, for countries that do not now have nuclear weapons and sign the treaty, they agree not to develop them in return for being able to develop civilian nuclear capability. So one was to strengthen this, to try to make sure that countries didn't leave the NPT, to make sure that the enforcement mechanisms, the oversight mechanisms, like the International Atomic Energy Agency, were strengthened, inspections were strengthened, and the like. The second was to reduce the numbers and, uh, and roles of nuclear weapons for the nuclear weapon states themselves. Uh, that was important, one, because it relates to the first, because the nuclear weapon states had promised in the NPT that they would engage in disarmament and reduce their nuclear weapons. But second, there still remained a danger that the nuclear weapon states could inadvertently or uh, by choice engage in, in nuclear conflict. So there was a, a second pillar which had to do with reducing the numbers and roles of nuclear weapons. And the third pillar of the so-called nuclear security or global lockup agenda was to how to deal with the fact that there's a tremendous amount of material, fissile material and the like around, which is not terribly secure and would be particularly vulnerable to terrorists uh, getting their hands on uh, nuclear uh, materials and know-how. And so in, in Prague, he outlined these three elements. And over the last year, we've been pursuing all of them. On the NPT, we've just had a review conference, which was a reasonably successful one. It was one of the few times there's a review conference every five years, but because you have to reach agreement by consensus, uh, rarely do these actually result in an agreement and a document agreed to by all the parties, and we were able to do that this time. But we're also doing a number of other things to strengthen uh, the NPT, working with countries that are developing civilian nuclear power to have them agree not to have what's called a full fuel cycle so that they're not uh, reprocessing nuclear materials or manufacturing nuclear materials themselves uh, and creating an environment where the civilian nuclear programs don't become a bridgehead to a nuclear weapons program. We just signed an important agreement with the UAE, for example, uh, to engage in civilian nuclear cooperation, and the UAE agreed in turn not to develop its complete uh, fuel cycle. So that's on the first pillar. On the second pillar, on the disarmament pillar, there have been two important developments. The first, the most obvious, is the START Treaty Agreement between uh, the United States and Russia, which has significant reductions 
in the number of deployed nuclear weapons and nuclear launchers, which is now being considered by the U.S. Senate. We hope uh, to see that ratified in the near future. It's an important uh, reinvigoration of bilateral uh, nuclear arms control between the United States and Russia. But equally important was a, our uh, nuclear posture review, which is the, the, the unilateral decision by the President and the Secretary of Defense about how we think about the role of nuclear weapons in our strategy. And this posture review, and this is an important place uh, to draw some of the distinctions with the previous administration, made some important changes to reduce, first of all, commitment to develop no nuclear weapons capability, and second, a, uh, a strong, uh, what we no call... No new nuclear weapons capability. That's right. Yeah. And second, um, a commitment uh, to give what's called a negative security assurance. That is a guarantee to any country that's a member of the NPT and observing its non-proliferation obligations that the United States would not use nuclear weapons against them. Um, and that's a very important uh, element of kind of giving assurance to the NPT non-nuclear states that they are not going to be worse off by virtue of their not having nuclear weapons. So that's the second pillar of disarmament. On the third pillar, we had an important summit in Washington uh, two months ago, uh, 60 nations uh, coming together to develop effective new strategies and commitments to uh, lock down nuclear materials, to try to consolidate them, uh, to have many countries get rid of uh, old uh, nuclear research materials and the like that could prove vulnerable to terrorists. So that's sort of the, the three-pillar agenda that we made some progress. Obviously, there's a lot... Uh, to be done going forward, but I think there is some momentum on each. But even these are kind of broad global challenges, but the credibility of all of them depends on, as you say, our ability to deal with the two most uh, uh, direct and urgent uh, nuclear challenges, and that's uh, North Korea and Iran. Um, on North Korea, when uh, we took office, uh, we made clear to the North Koreans that we were prepared to continue the so-called six-party process that had begun under the Bush administration. Uh, in 2005, the North Koreans had signed the so-called joint statement in which they pledged to uh, get rid of their nuclear capabilities. And we indicated that we were prepared to move forward, uh, perhaps a little more aggressively, to try to implement that. Uh, as is their want, the North Koreans, when a new administration comes into office, likes to kind of test them to see where they are and to see whether they can wring some new concessions out of a new administration. And within a few months of taking office, uh, our taking office, um, the North Koreans uh, had a ballistic missile test followed by a nuclear test in May of last year. And uh, I think the important uh, lesson out of that was that rather than generating or, or exacting new concessions from the United States and others, this actually deepened the international community's sense of a concern about the North Korean nuclear program. And in June of last year, the Security Council passed Resolution 1874, which imposed very tough new sanctions on North Korea. We're now in a complex game with the North Koreans. It's further complicated by the North Korean attack on the um, uh, South Korean frigate a couple of months ago, and we're working our way through this. But I think the strong international consensus and concern about North Korea, which has been made clear to them, at least gives us an opportunity to demonstrate that they're not going to get the kinds of concessions that they want and that they need through uh, provocation. Um, and hopefully this will lead them to consider the alternative track. It's also complicated by the fact that there appears to be some political changes going on in North Korea, which complicate the issue. On Iran, uh, again, in terms of contrast with the previous administration, the president made clear during the campaign that he was prepared to engage with Iran, that he said that if you looked at the period in the previous administration where there had been no direct engagement, it hadn't produced the result that we wanted, uh, that there was no diminution of the uh, Iranian uh, nuclear program and that we ought to try direct engagement for two reasons. One, because it might work, 
uh, and might produce a diplomatic solution. But if it didn't, it would strengthen our hand in dealing with the international community uh, to make clear that the Iranians did not appear to be interested in a diplomatic solution and therefore would make it easier for us to develop international support for stronger measures against Iran. This is clear they didn't respond very much to the engagement. We had a little bit of progress last October when we appeared to reach an agreement with Iran for them to ship out the bulk of their uh, low-enriched uranium. Uh, but after reaching a re negotiated agreement in Geneva, that was uh, renounced by the leadership in Iran. And as a result, we've moved on the other track. And as uh, you all know, in the past couple of weeks, we've reached a, an agreement in New York, a new resolution, um, uh, 1929, which imposes unprecedented new sanctions, uh, global sanctions on Iran. And uh, more recently, the US Congress has passed uh, some uh, national sanctions here and the European Union is working on its own package of measures against Iran. We've made clear that the door for diplomacy remains open. Uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, but I think, again, the, the, the sense of a strong international reaction to Iran's continued defiance uh, puts us in a better position to try to constrain them. There are obviously no guarantees, but we think at least it offers an opportunity going forward. I think what's important about both cases is the fact that we've made a very strong commitment by using this effort and demonstrating our willingness to solve this problem diplomatically if the other side is willing, that it makes it easier for us to get others to work with us when they don't. Uh, and we will see going forward uh, in both cases uh, how the, the regimes in both cases uh, respond to these efforts. So that's kind of the landscape uh, that we're working with. Well, that's a very good overview, and we'll come back to Iran and North Korea in just a moment. I wanted to ask a few questions on a few of the pillars here, uh, and uh, then we'll turn to, to these hard cases. First, on the nuclear posture review, which every president turns out as sort of their, their seminal uh, strategy uh, for, uh, for dealing with uh, both nuclear strategy and nuclear weapons, there's an interesting phrase in it in which it says that the purpose of nuclear weapons is to protect, of course, our nation, uh, protect our allies, and protect our friends. And the our friends is an interesting phrase in it because it raised the question of whether or not the American nuclear umbrella is expanding in some way, it's expanding in an ambiguous way. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about what that means, why that phrase was put in? I, I think it's, um, it's clear that we have a, I mean, I, I think it's important to take a step back and people understand a little bit about the way we think about the role of nuclear weapons and what the doctrine is. Um, the, we say in, uh, in the document that the, the, the primary purpose, the principal purpose of, uh, of nuclear weapons is to deter the use of nuclear weapons by others. Uh, but we also know that there are uh, a handful of cases where um, our partners face uh, nuclear threats that um, put them in a situation where they, because the other side may have nuclear capabilities, that they might come under conventional attack and be put in a position where they can't defend themselves and we are reserving the right to be able to use nuclear weapons in defense of our NATO uh, party, our partners of South Korea uh, and Japan, where we have formal treaty uh, obligations to defend them. We've also made clear that we won't use nuclear weapons uh, against states that are not nuclear weapon states and are in, uh, in compliance with, with the NPT. So we've laid out a landscape of both 
what we are reserving the right to do and what we are explicitly in compliance by today. American eyes. I mean, obviously, the Iranians would say they are in compliance. Well, but you would I mean, disagree. Well, that, that's an easy case <laughs> yeah. because the IAEA disagrees and the UN Security right. Council disagrees. So, yes, I mean, we, we are not, you know, ceding to others a determination about that. But obviously, when you have strong indications with respect to the two cases that are most of concern in North Korea and, and Iran, this is not just a kind of a unilateral U.S. judgment. Right. Okay. Um, but when you talk about our friends, uh, treaty allies I understand. Friends seem to be intended to signal to countries like Iran that our partners in the Middle East who might not be treaty allies, uh, not members of NATO and so forth, might also be covered under the American nuclear umbrella. Are they? Uh, again, what I, I'll repeat what I said, which is we have formal treaty obligations right. um, <clears throat> to our NATO allies and <clears throat> to Japan, Korea, Australia, and others, and, and, and therefore we are obliged to come to their defense. And we have reserved the right, although it's certainly not our expectation that that, that will be necessary. And we make very clear that just because we reserve the right to do it doesn't mean we have the expectation or intention to do it. Uh, we made very clear in the Nuclear Posture Review that <clears throat> uh, nuclear weapons are a last resort. It's not something that one uh, would uh, easily resort to, even in those circumstances where we've reserved the right to do it. Whether there are other circumstances, we, we will judge what our national interests are, but we make clear that there are only a small category of cases where the uh, other side would even be possible objects of the use of nuclear weapons. Uh, another interesting element of the posture view is that there is a, a heavier reliance on missile defenses than um, many expected, particularly from... Uh, uh, a president who comes out of the Democratic uh, Party. Uh, obviously, there was a realignment of missile defense uh, announced last year. Um, tell us a little bit about how missile defense fits into the strategy as the president envisions it here. Well, as I said, the, the fact that we have reserved the right to use nuclear weapons in a small category of cases doesn't mean that we want to or that we think that would be a good result. And the stronger our defenses are, our conventional defenses, the less likely it is we'll ever find ourselves in a place where you would even have to think about that possibility. So that's why we're strengthening our alliances with our partners, with South Korea, with Japan. That's why we're developing the capability to have regional defenses to deal with a problem like uh, North Korea or potentially Iran, because that means that if you have defenses, then you're not necessarily forced with an early decision to think about what other kinds of offensive measures you need. So what we are looking for is a strategy. I mean, again, keep in mind the president's overall objective here. He is working towards a personal strong commitment to try to lead to a world without nuclear weapons. So what you need to do to get there is, one, to get other people to give up nuclear weapons, at the same time be able to provide secure, reliable defense for the United States and for our friends and allies without having to depend on nuclear weapons. So capable conventional forces, capable uh, regional missile defenses all lower or raise the nuclear threshold, lower the need to even imagine the possibility that you would need to use nuclear weapons. And to your mind, is the missile defense technology significantly better than when you left office no question. <coughs> during the Clinton There's no question that it's better. But again, it, it should also be clear in missile defense is that the, as we develop missile defenses, we are looking at regional threats. These are not designed, as the President's made clear, uh, to uh, <coughs> undermine the strategic nuclear deterrent of Russia or China, and that the purpose is to deal with these emerging threats like Iran and North Korea, in part to convince them that they have nothing to gain 
from moving down the road to developing ballistic missiles and nuclear weapons because if we can develop strong defenses, then the value to them of developing missiles and, and nuclear weapons is low and the cost to them is high. And we want them to reconsider their balance. We want them to see that they will be worse off by developing the systems than better off. And so this is a comprehensive strategy that, that reduces the value to them of their military buildup and gives them more reason to choose the alternative path, which is not to pursue nuclear weapons. The main objection that you've heard from some Republicans about the START Treaty is the allegation that it would <coughs> limit um, missile defenses in the future. Mitt Romney just wrote a fairly lengthy op-ed in the uh, Wall Street Journal on this. You've seen others. Um, what kind of uh, limitations, if any, do you believe START places on this None. from the preamble? None. <clears throat> Categorically none. Um, and as Senator Kerry said in his op-ed the following day, and as uh, former uh, National Security Advisor and Secretary of State Henry Kissinger have said, there are no limitations uh, on this. I mean, let's be perfectly clear. Um, the Russians have the right, uh, if they determine it's in their strategic uh, national interest, to withdraw from the treaty. Every arms control treaty that has ever been negotiated has always had a su supreme national interest withdrawal clause. And we would want one of those too, by the way. If events developed that were unforeseen but threatened our interests, we would want one too. But there is no limitation uh, on what we can do in terms of missile defenses. The two issues that uh, Mr. Romney raised were the preamble, which uh, simply reflects the fact that there is a relationship between offenses and defenses, which is self-evident. And second, uh, the fact that we have not uh, chosen to convert uh, certain of our IBM um, uh, silos to uh, missile defenses, which nobody would have any intention of doing because they're in the wrong place. So there's no uh, any kind of constraint on what we can do. Obviously, the Russians would have to make a decision as to whether they felt uh, threatened by that, mm -hmm. but it certainly doesn't constrain us. When you describe the pillars, you didn't mention the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, which, of course... Uh, the Clinton administration tried to get passed. It, was, uh, it, it did not pass the Senate. Um, Vice President Biden said a few months ago uh, that it would be reintroduced soon. Uh, we haven't heard a lot about it since. Well, it, the CTBT, the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, contributes to two of the three pillars because it strengthens the nonproliferation regime, the first pillar, because it's harder for countries to develop a reliable, capable nuclear weapons if they can't test. So the more countries that join it, the less likelihood that there will be um, nuclear proliferation. And second, it's part of our own commitment. It's always been seen as part of the disarmament commitment that by, for the nuclear weapons countries not to test. So it, it reinforces both pillars. Uh, we see the, the treaty in a sequence. We'd like to see the ratification of START first and then move on to CTBT, but it's very much a priority and on the agenda for the United States. But it would likely come after the, the midterm elections. Yeah, no, I, don't, I don't think there's any chance it will come this year. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, our goal is to get START ratified this year, and then that would create a, a good basis for moving on with CTBT. Let's turn to Iran for a moment, which you uh, raised before. Um, two weeks ago, we heard uh, Director Panetta of the CIA say uh, on one of the Sunday talk shows that while he thought the sanctions would uh, hurt Iran, he did not believe that they alone would be sufficient to get Iran to give up its nuclear program, which, of course, is the purpose of the U.N. sanctions if you go back over the past four years against Iran. Uh, then uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, Admiral Mullen, was out here in Aspen uh, a week ago Monday, and he said essentially the same thing. He believed that these were useful sanctions but did not believe they would be sufficient. What would be sufficient? 
to get Iran to come to the conclusion that the nuclear program is simply too costly for them? Um, my own view as a former policy planner is that uh, we're not in the prediction business. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're in the policy business. And um, we will see how this evolves. The, the, the point of the sanctions are part the economic impact of the sanctions and the uh, operational impact. This will not only have an economic impact on Iran, but it will significantly uh, impact its ability to acquire the technologies that it needs to continue to develop its nuclear program. But I think equally important is the political um, signal that this represents. And beyond the specific economic impact is the the sense that there is a broad international consensus uh, that Iran is uh, pursuing dangerous nuclear technologies that it can't be trusted. Uh, The fact that the Security Council not only has imposed these sanctions, but has told Iran that it can't enrich uh, 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 fissile material reflects the fact that basically the, the, the international media judges that Iran is not trustworthy, that other countries can enrich under the NPT and do, even though they're non-nuclear weapon states, because they prove that they're reliable, committed to their non-nuclear obligations. And the more we're able to reinforce this sense that, that Iran is not trustworthy, that it is, it's, it is engaging in clandestine behavior, surreptitious behavior, the more the pressure grows on the regime And that, I think, is as important as the specific economic measures there. And we will continue to try to build that to keep the spotlight on Iran, and we'll see whether that produces the result necessary. In the past two weeks, you've heard both the Russians and the Chinese object to the additional sanctions that have been placed by the United States and by Europe uh, on the Iranians, uh, saying that that was not part of the bargain. Um, What do you tell them? Well, I think, I mean, first, the... There, there is a two-stage process here. We have, we have the UN sanctions. There has always been um, national sanctions that have been different, and in many cases that go beyond the UN sanctions, in part because the, the Security Council resolution has two elements to it. It has some mandatory elements, which all countries, all members of the UN are obliged to uh, uh, implement. And there are some in which it calls upon states to do things or it urges states to do things which are not required for every state, but in effect, by it opens the door to having states that want to take more vigorous measures uh, to do and take those measures. For example, on energy, where there's no specific uh, ban on energy dealings with Iran, but there is a, sort of a recognition that, that the energy sector is an important source of, of resources for the regime uh, to, um, to develop its nuclear program. So many of the sanctions that we and the Europeans are doing are within the, the umbrella of the UN. They're in the, the, the non-mandatory, but the, the things that are contemplated by Security Council resolution. The second thing is we work very carefully with the Congress um, on the structure of this new U.S. sanctions regime. And one of the provisions uh, in the, um, the new U.S. law uh, allows us uh, basically to uh, waive the applicability of sanctions on companies um, that, are with, or that are located in countries that are, in the words of the statute, closely cooperating with the United States in implementing the UN sanctions and uh, trying to address the Iranian nuclear program. So to the extent that countries are engaged in vigorous implementation of their obligations under the UN Security Council resolution and are generally working with us on this project, the, you, the administration has discretion uh, to not impose sanctions on uh, companies uh, in those countries. So that gives us an ability, it gives us an incentive uh, to get other countries to work with us to go beyond the Security Council resolutions, uh, but it also gives them uh, a benefit for continuing to work with us. And that would specifically apply to Russian and Chinese companies? If- you know, it would apply to any, any 
company in a country that the President and Secretary were able to determine were closely cooperating uh, with the United States in this effort. One of the most commonly discussed scenarios for the Iranians is not nuclear breakout, but instead going right to the edge. This is something that um, we heard uh, uh, we heard Admiral Mullen discuss at some length uh, the other night, and that would be an Iran that puts together the capability, has enough fuel right now by the IEA uh, measures. They have enough fuel that with further enrichment they could get to two weapons, but at current pace, by probably middle of next year, they would be at three if it if it uh, if it's if they continue to at at current paces, which is not a guarantee. Um, when you look at the strategic effects throughout the region, is an Iran that is, has the capability to go nuclear, but has stayed just within the limits of the treaty, has not done nuclear breakout as dangerous as an Iran that, say, went the North Korea path and declared that it had a weapon? You know, I, I'm not sure how you can split the degrees of danger here. I mean, that is to say that, that if the neighboring countries reach the conclusion that, uh, that they face in a, within a relatively short period of time an Iran that could go to a nuclear weapon, uh, they will have to make the calculations that, that uh, address their own sense of their security interests uh, there. Um, whether they would, they would make that fine distinction is ultimately something that they have to do, and I don't think we're in an ideal position to judge at what point the neighbors, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, um, others, would have to make a different decision about their security. But clearly, the closer they get, the more countries will have to hedge their bets and take measures uh, that would put them at least in as well off or in a similar position, and that's obviously the great fear. I mean, there are many reasons to worry about Iran's nuclear program. One, of course, is the, the danger that it will spur others, the neighbors who feel threatened by Iran, to develop their own nuclear capability. A second is that with the shield of a nuclear weapon, it may cause Iran to be more aggressive in how it deals with its neighbors, whether it's Iraq or uh, Afghanistan or uh, the Gulf. And the third is, because of Iran's long history of engagement with terrorist organizations, whether there is a risk that this uh, nuclear capability or nuclear material would fall into the hands of terrorists. So many of those risks exist, even if they don't actually you know, become a declared nuclear weapon state. And that's why you know, we have put so much emphasis on getting a halt to uh, the enrichment program. Uh, two days ago, uh, you heard the ambassador from the UAE uh, here in Aspen say that this is uh, a question of measuring risk, and that on the one hand, there are the risks of having an Iran that continues along the path that you just described. On the other hand, there are the many risks, which Secretary Gates, Admiral Mullen, and others have described of uh, military action being taken, either by Israel or the United States or anybody else. Um, the ambassador said uh, that at, in his own judgment, uh, that the risks of taking military action may no longer be greater than the risks of letting Iran get a weapon. Uh, you then saw the UAE back away pretty quick from, from what he said. Um, as this discussion goes on within the region, do you um, come to the conclusion that other uh, neighbors of Iran are also changing their assessment of this balance? You know, I think the problem with the question, David, is at heart it, it is a hypothetical. And while when I was the dean of the LBJ School, we liked you to do hypotheticals. hypotheticals back then, yeah. Um, uh, in government, they tend not to be very productive. I think that there is a very strong international consensus 
that uh, Iran acquiring a nuclear weapons capability would be enormously dangerous and destabilizing. And countries are working very hard and collaborating very effectively to try to prevent that from happening. That's our strategy. That's what we're pursuing. Uh, we've made clear that we don't rule in or out any options, but that we have a strategy that we're now implementing that includes diplomacy and significant sanctions and economic and political measures. Uh, and that's the path that we're, we tend to pursue to, to achieve that objective. You've just had Prime Minister Netanyahu in Washington. Uh, obviously, he's the one we focus on the most when we talk about the two clocks, the American clock of patience here and the Israeli clock. Coming out of that meeting, um, what conclusions uh, has the administration reached about the Israeli clock? Do you believe that they are willing to give sanctions time uh, at this point? I do. I mean, I think we've worked, uh, we've, we've consulted very closely with the Israelis. We understand the, the degree of risk and threat mm-hmm. that the Iranian nuclear uh, program poses to them. You certainly can, given the, the rhetoric of the president of Iran and others, it's, it would be hard if you were an Israeli not to take that very seriously. Uh, but we've also uh, worked together to try to figure out a strategy because I think they share the view that the first best outcome is a combination of diplomacy and political and economic pressure. Uh, and we've exchanged views on what kinds of pressures would be most effective. And I do think we're working together uh, very effectively, along with many other countries, obviously, uh, to pursue this track. In the final statement that they issued at the end of that meeting, there was a line in it about how the Israelis uh, need the capability to defend themselves by themselves. Uh, was that inserted in part out of Israeli insistence that they make it clear that if they did have to make a decision to use military action, this was solely their decision? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, to be honest, I wasn't involved in the drafting of that, but, but I would interpret that having more to do with the kinds of things we were talking about before, like missile defense and our very strong security cooperation. We have a, an, an absolute commitment uh, to uh, sustain Israel's qualitative military edge over uh, the countries that might threaten it. We have a very robust uh, program of, of uh, security support, engagement, with them to deal with the threats, including the, the very obvious missile threat that they face, not just from Iran, but from other near neighbors. And so I, I would interpret that more in the context of our strong sense that we need to help, is continue to help Israel develop those kinds of capabilities like missile defenses and others that assure its security. Last question on Iran before we move on to North Korea. You mentioned that the door was still open to diplomacy. <laughs> Um, You've seen the Europeans say the same thing in in recent days. Um, What could a swap deal look like, a a deal reviving the deal from the the fall in which the Iranians agreed to uh, move some of their nuclear material out of the country uh, that could be potentially successful? Obviously, the amounts that were being discussed in the fall wouldn't give you the kind of time and guarantees today because they've produced significantly more nuclear material sense. Yeah. Well, I'm, it won't surprise you. I don't want to try to negotiate this here, but, uh, but we did, when in response to the so-called Tehran Declaration, when the Iranians finally agreed nine months later to the agreement that they declined to agree to uh, back in October, we, we identified a number of shortfalls in what they had, uh, had proposed to do. One, of course, is the amount. At the time that we reached the agreement in uh, October, uh, we had agreed that they would ship out 1,200 kilograms of low-enriched uranium, uh, which represented about three-quarters of what we believed that they had and certainly would put them below the amount of LEU that would be necessary to build a bomb. They've moved beyond that now, so that's the fact that they moved significantly beyond that now is one concern that would have to be addressed. 
Subsequent to the October agreement, they have begun to enrich that, some of that LEU, which is at 3.5% enrichment, up to close to 20%. Uh, which they, they had no 20% uh, enriched uranium in October. So that's another problem they would have to address. That's things that have gotten worse, in effect, since the October uh, program that they would have to address. And they would have to address not only what getting rid of that 20% that they've already addressed, but terminating the, the 20% uh, enrichment program. Um, so those are the concerns. Those are the, some of the elements that would have to be addressed. What that would look like and what might be acceptable, I think, would have to be discussed. But it's clear that we need to remember what we were trying to accomplish with the October agreement. In some ways, this was, it was designed as a confidence-building gesture to demonstrate the seriousness of our willingness to pursue diplomacy. Iran is running out of the fuel for its, uh, the so-called Tehran research reactor, which helps build medical isotopes and the like. We indicated that notwithstanding the Security Council resolutions, we were willing to provide the fuel for that as a gesture of goodwill, if they were prepared to uh, uh, undertake a gesture of goodwill by getting rid of this large supply of LEU and thus building confidence that they weren't just storing up enough to build a bomb. Rather than using this as an opportunity to build confidence, they use this as an opportunity to delay, to prevaricate, and the like, uh, and so rather than the confidence-building exercise. So all of what's happened since now, not only has the specific set of issues that I've raised, but also the broader question but what can Iran do now uh, to demonstrate what it says is its intentions to be, only have a peaceful nuclear program in light of the, the hidden uh, enrichment uh, facility at Qom, uh, the fact that they went back and forth on these agreements and like. There is some, I think, need at this point for the Iranians to take the steps, not only the operational measures, but the real forthcomingness to show that if they're serious about not... Uh, wanting to have a nuclear weapons program, that they could be transparent, that they could be more willing to uh, implement the so-called additional protocol, which is uh, part of the IAE inspections. There are a lot of things they could do if they, were, if they were serious about being a civilian nuclear power which had no intentions uh, to develop nuclear weapons, and we're not seeing any signs of that. So I think there's some operational things they do, but there are also some subjective things that would demonstrate good faith and serious intention on their part. Let's turn briefly to North Korea. Um, you could argue that the North Koreans have done an awful lot for which they paid very little price. Uh, they built a near-complete reactor in Syria uh, for which there was no penalty. There were no sanctions. There were sanctions, as you point out, for their nuclear tests and missile tests last year. But for the sinking of the Chinon, the frigate that you mentioned, the South Korean frigate, in which 46 South Koreans uh, were killed... There so far has been no penalty, and what's being discussed right now at the UN is a president's statement with no real sanction attached, more a, an expression of condemnation. And even that hasn't happened yet, and the attack was now uh, four months ago. Uh, if you were a North Korean, wouldn't you come to the conclusion from this that there's an awful lot you can do and pay very little price? I don't think so, David. I, I, I you know, will defer comment on the the incident with the Syrian reactor that obviously happened uh, before we came into office. But I think the, the measures that were taken in June were extremely uh, significant. They, uh, for the first time, put significant restrictions on a lot of uh, banking and, and shipping transactions, including the possibility of inspections uh, that had never before taken place. And I, we do think that's having an impact in, in North Korea. Um, and we've also seen what a great... What kind of impact? Is it reducing the amount of shipping that they have coming out? It's or? making it harder for them to, to do the kinds of deals that they want to do. Mm -hmm. um, 
and it hasn't stopped, and we still have a lot of work to do. I don't want to overstate it, but I also, it, it clearly has made, they, they have to work a lot harder to try to continue to do this. And we're having a lot of success, particularly with other countries in cooperating with us. And I would say in particular with China, that we're seeing a greater willingness of China to actually take seriously the implementation of some of these uh, Security Council resolutions, and other countries as well. Um, on the Chanam, it's important to recall that the, the South Koreans did take a number of measures by themselves, which also had a significant impact. They uh, denied access from North Korea to ship through mm -hmm. South Korean waters. They ended a number of the cooperative uh, economic projects that they had uh, with the North, so that there were some significant things. There's not much more the United States can do. We, do, we have comprehensive sanctions against North Korea. We do no business at all with North Korea. So from our perspective... Um, you you know, don't have we, a lot of room. We right. have, there's not, not a lot of place to go in this. Um, and again, you know, on the, on, in New York, we'll, uh, I'd just say watch the space. We're having some very productive conversations in New York, and, and, and we'll see what comes out of that. But again, I think that, that what each of these things have demonstrated, and it may take some time, and we recognize that there, there, there is, on the one hand, a, a certain degree of urgency here that we are all very cognizant of, but there's also, we see North Korea sort of testing the intentions of the international community, as you said, and what they're not getting is something that they had occasionally in the past gotten, which is uh, rewards for going back to talks without actually having to do anything or taking steps which were reversible and getting rewarded for the steps and then reversing them thereafter. And we've made clear that, one, we're not going to reward them just for the, their willingness to get back into talks. If they want to see progress towards normalization, they're going to have to take irreversible steps to meet their commitments um, to uh, the, the joint statement towards uh, denuclearization and that it may take some time for them to have uh, tested the various kind of traditional steps they've taken to see whether there's an easy way to avoid the tough choice. But we hope that they're coming to the recognition that there is only two choices, which is deeper isolation, deeper economic hardship, and deeper instability that that could create, or um, the opportunity to change course, uh, to begin to recommit to the, and take the steps to implement their commitments and have a different path. In retrospect, do you believe the Bush administration made an error by taking them off the terrorism list, uh, reducing some of the other sanctions in return for actions in the six-party talks that, as you pointed out, have turned out to be reversible? I don't think it's useful to look backwards on this. I think it's important to see it, you know, to draw the conclusions from, from how far it went. Uh, but I think that you know, what is very clear is that the North Koreans will clearly try to get uh, payments, blackmail, the like, for these kinds of provocations. And the one thing that has been very clear over the last 18 months is that strategy is not going to work for them. Uh, you know, there's no guarantee that they won't just sit in splendid isolation and eat grass, as they like to say. Mm -hmm. uh, but we at least, I think, can pose the choice in a stark way to them and hope that this will lead them to recognize that, because there are, the fact that they have engaged in this, at least that there's at least some desire on their part to get the benefits of engagement with the United States to res resume uh, more traditional economic engagement and the like. So we'll see. Some of your colleagues have suggested that in the first months of the Obama administration, uh, there was a reluctance to deal very much with uh, North Korea, in part because you thought a succession crisis was underway. Obviously, there is a lot of succession politics going on. At the time when you came into office, it, it looked like um, uh, Kim Jong-il was quite, quite ill. He's now obviously survived the first 18 months uh, since you've been in office. Um, do you believe it is possible to negotiate with the North Koreans while they are in the midst of the succession politics? Well, 
just on the first part of your question, I'm not sure I would accept the premise. I mean, at the very outset of the administration, in the first weeks, we communicated very clearly to the North that we were prepared to move forward with the six-party process. We were aware from the moment we entered office that they were making preparations to, uh, to do this ballistic missile test. And we made clear to them that, one, they shouldn't do it. Two, that we wanted to talk to them about reinstating the ballistic missile moratorium that had initially been uh, negotiated during the Clinton administration. And that we thought this was a good opportunity for them to forbear on the testing, uh, to move forward on the diplomatic track, and to see whether we could make progress. They chose to do something very different. So it wasn't for lack of interest or unwillingness to engage. We saw that they wanted to test uh, our willingness to uh, pay them for stopping doing more bad things, uh, as is their want. Um, pay them again. Uh, pay them again <laughs> and again, um, the third time. I, I so, think Secretary Gates referred to that as, I bought that horse once already. Twice already. Yeah. Twice already. <laughs> That's exactly right. So, um, and, and in light of that, you know, we turned our attention to mobilizing the international community. There wasn't, it didn't look very ripe for negotiations, but we clearly indicated that we were prepared to move back into that. It's impossible to know whether they are in a position to negotiate or not. These, again, this is a matter of prediction and not policy. Uh-huh. But we can, we can test the proposition. We can make clear that we are prepared, uh, that it would be in their interest if they want to move forward in their own succession to have a more positive environment rather than a more confrontational environment and that they should see it as in their own interest, whatever their own internal political objectives are, to address the questions that have caused the international community to impose these sanctions on them. Whether they'll respond or not, whether the, the succession process makes them capable of responding is something we'll only see as it unfolds. You noted that the Syria incident happened not on your watch but the previous administrations. Do you have any evidence that the North Koreans currently are helping other countries uh, begin with nuclear technology? There have been a lot of reports about Myanmar. There have been continued reports elsewhere. Um, you know, I would just say we're obviously very vigilant, given the past, that they are capable of engaging in reckless behavior, and we watch it very closely. Uh, we have to make assessments uh, from time to time. We have not made the assessment that that is taking place, but the fact that we, we don't know that it's taking place doesn't mean it's not taking place. You have to be very careful about what you don't know as well as you do know. We do know, however, that there still remains uh, significant arms trade between uh, North Korea and Burma, which is in violation of the Security Council resolutions, and we made that very clear. We made it very clear uh, to the government of Burma that we uh, have... Uh, absolute expectation that they meet their obligations under the Security Council resolution and not to engage in that trade. Last question before we open it up to the audience. Um, Pakistan, when you came to office, um, the AQ Khan uh, experience was still very fresh in everybody's mind. Uh, There was a lot of concern given signs of instability in Pakistan about their own arsenal of uh, 100 or so nuclear weapons, maybe a few less than that. Um, what has changed uh, in Pakistan in the 18 months you've been in office? Do you believe the nuclear security is significantly better? Do you believe the threat to their own arsenal has been weakened by the attacks on al-Qaeda and, and the Taliban? You know, I think everybody recognizes that um, the, the question of a country's own uh, nuclear security measures is about as sensitive as it gets. Mm-hmm. And we understand that they touch deeply on questions of sovereignty and, and national defense, and so a lot of the, the public speculation about it is, I think, doesn't advance our common interest in encouraging Pakistan and every other state to do whatever it can uh, to make sure that its uh, nuclear materials and capabilities, or in the case of nuclear weapon states, their nuclear weapons are as safe as they possibly can be. And we continue to work with that. 
I would say the things that have changed, things that have, positive things have changed, is I think we have seen a strengthening of um, civilian governance mm -hmm. uh, in uh, Pakistan, the, the transition both to civilian leadership and now with the adoption of the 18th Amendment, the, the strengthening of the position of the prime minister, I think is a very positive development in terms of the long-term future and stability of governance in Pakistan. I also think that our common efforts in dealing with the uh, extremist threats, both from al-Qaeda and from those elements of the Taliban associated with it, uh, are obviously contributes to uh, greater security in Pakistan, and it's something, but it's something that's on the front of everybody's agenda because, as I say, not just with Pakistan, but with everybody. That's why the third pillar is so important, is that the danger for any country that other than 100% certainty about nuclear security is too much risk for us to, uh, to have to live with. Well, Pakistan and India are the two countries that are, are probably producing the most new fissile material uh, that is bomb grade of any countries uh, on Earth right now. What, that's why it's obviously an especially high priority. And, and what are you doing to persuade them to stop that kind of production? You know, as you know, the United States is a strong advocate of uh, fissile material cutoff treaty. Mm -hmm. uh, we think that we've agreed to stop producing it. We think everybody should agree to stop producing it. And it does raise the risk of diversion uh, at a very high rate, and uh, it's something that we're going to continue to pursue through the Geneva Conference on Disarmament and elsewhere. But the Pakistanis are still opposing you on this. They are still, have not come around. Let us um, open the floor to questions. Uh, there are some microphones around. When you stand up, please tell us who you are, and please really ask a question. Gentlemen, right over there. Hi, <clears throat> Stuart Brand from Global Business Network. I have a question about nuclear weapons and nuclear energy. Uh, in light of climate change, the president is sort of encouraging the expansion of nuclear energy in the world. He, uh, last June in Prague, pushed uh, fuel banking as an approach to take with that. So my question is, can the expansion of nuclear energy be finessed in a way that it helps curtail the expansion of nuclear weapons and maybe even help reduce them? Well, it's, it's an important question because, as you say, I mean, although it's possible to overstate the contribution that nuclear energy can uh, make to dealing with the, the CO2 problem, it clearly is a component. The president recognizes a component, and particularly in some of the, the fast-growing developing countries, this is clearly going to be part of their strategy. So the ideal is to be able to have uh, nuclear, uh, civilian nuclear power uh, generation, which is safe, which deals with the, the waste problems as well as the proliferation problems. The clearly on the proliferation side, that there are some obvious steps that can be taken, like having global nuclear fuel banks so the countries don't need to produce the fissile material themselves and don't need to reprocess their spent nuclear materials. That's the stuff that's dangerous. That's the stuff that could be diverted. If we could have agreements on a global fuel bank, the Russians have offered to host one. The IAEA has been supporting that. Uh, that would make it possible for countries to move down that road. And as I said in our recent agreement with the UAE, they've agreed to develop civil nuclear power and we've agreed to cooperate with them. And the reason, part of the reason we did it is because they agreed not to have the complete fuel cycle. So we think that's a model of how countries should go going forward. The more we can get, provide incentives for countries to do that and to recognize that they may have the right to have the complete fuel cycle, but they don't have to have it just because they have the right to do it, is going to be in their interest. That means they have to be comfortable that those sources of fuel are reliable. It's understandable. Uh, that they're not going to be subject to arbitrary interruption and the like. These are difficult problems. But I think if we start with the premise that we want to have civilian nuclear power, but we need to do it in a way that's, that's proliferation resistant, there are some, I think, effective strategies we could pursue. Are you right here? Hi. <clears throat> I'm Vicki Brooks. 
Uh, I think there are three nuclear countries now that have not signed the NPT. I'm not sure if there are more or less. But what countries are they and what um, problems does this pose and are you what are you trying to do about that? Well, the three countries that haven't signed are India, Pakistan, and Israel. Um, and you know, clearly our view is in the long term, we would like to see universal adherence to the MPT. That's been the position of the Obama administration and all the administrations that are before us. We also recognize that getting there, just like getting to our goal of zero nuclear weapons globally, is not something that's going to be easily achieved and will have to be done in the context of the, the regional security environments in which those countries uh, exist. And so we've made very clear that while in principle we would like to see that, we don't expect uh, countries to take that step until the underlying problems that, that, uh, that generated the, their posture in the first place is addressed. And so that's for, for in the case of uh, India and Pakistan, why we encourage them to engage in greater dialogue. We've been very encouraged by the increased engagement uh, that uh, Prime Minister Singh has uh, moved forward with and the, the contact between the two foreign secretaries and now the two foreign ministers between India and Pakistan. They've got a long way to go to build confidence, but it's good to see them doing it, and they need to do it directly with each other. Uh, with respect to the Middle East, we've got to deal with the underlying sources of instability, beginning with Iran, uh, and not just its nuclear program, but its support for terrorism and its, its dangerous interference in the activities of its neighbors. And we've got to move forward on the peace process, which will help create a better environment, a more secure environment for Israel and all the countries of the region. So there are ways that you can move forward to this longer-term objective of universal adherence by working the underlying problems uh, that would make it uh, more acceptable for the countries to see that their security interests would be uh, served. Because after all, if we achieve what we're trying to do, that is the president's vision of zero nuclear weapons, then this distinction between non nuclear weapon states and non-nuclear weapon states is going to diminish over time and ultimately go away. And the more credibility that we have by negotiating agreements like START, by uh, implementing the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, by our own uh, reducing the role and numbers of nuclear weapons in our strategy, the more we're narrowing the difference between nuclear weapon states and non-nuclear weapon states, and therefore making it more acceptable for all countries to come into the treaty. Jim, just to follow up on that, um the Iranians' um, most potent talking point in the region is why is the United States and others in the international community focusing on them and rarely, if ever, discussing Israel's assumed nuclear uh, capability, nuclear weapons capability. And that was what was behind the effort at the NPT, which the U.S. objected to, of naming uh, Israel in the, uh, the final NPT uh, statement came up again this past week with Prime Minister Netanyahu. Um, how does the U.S. work its way through this, this conundrum of well, I, no I, I actually don't think there's a, a conundrum. I, because, I mean, for better or for worse, the Israelis are not in the NPT. That was a choice all countries have to make. The Iranians are. They claim to not have a nuclear weapons program. They claim to have an entirely peaceful nuclear program. But... They have consistently violated their obligations to the IAEA. They have pursued surreptitious nuclear enrichment programs and surreptitious nuclear technology programs. And they have consistently violated all the Security Council resolutions. So they can't have it both ways. They can't claim that they are a, a respecting, you know, in compliance member of the NPT as a non-nuclear weapon state, which consistently violates all its obligations. So there, there's, just, there's no equivalence here. And, and they have an obligation, as the Security Council and the rest of the international community, the Board of Governors of the IAEA, have made clear, to put themselves right 
by the NPT. Maybe then they'd have something to say. But right now, they're, they're the ones who need to demonstrate that they're serious about meeting their own obligations. Sir. As, as we make judgments as to timetables, uh, using the Iranian situation as an example, how is it... How confident are we that we really know what's going on, and uh, on what basis do we make those uh, those judgments? To well, the extent you can answer any of that. And of course, I can't. Um, uh, you know, these are I mean, these are obviously the most sensitive matters um, in terms of, of our own ability. But we know a lot simply from the IAEA. I mean, don't forget that that a lot of what we have learned about the Iranian nuclear program has come from the, the inspectors, both what they find and what they've been denied, you know, the ability to do. So we know a certain amount. We certainly know a, a fair amount about how much LEU they have from the fact that the, we, they do let the inspectors see some of that, and they're kind of very proud of the fact that they're churning the stuff out. There are obviously a number of other ways that we do. It won't be surprising to you that, uh, that it's not something I can discuss very easily here. Steve? Steve Clements with the New America Foundation. Uh, Jim and David, thanks for really an outstanding session. Jim... President Obama's nuclear summitry, if you look at the package of it, um, I think it's, it's probably the, the most tangible success the administration has had on the international front. And you said that one of his goals is to, is to lead by showing that nuclear weapons have a much um, decreased footprint in the arsenal that the United States has. Bob Gates, when he came into government, wanted the reliable, replaceable warhead called the RRW. And so is it really now dead? Because as part of the deal-making that I know uh, that I suspect went on, Vice President Biden, yourself, and others put a package of resources together for the nuclear weapons labs that didn't particularly include the RRW, but it's not clear to me that it didn't. But it looked like this was an, you know, a, a gift to a certain part of the sector to, to, to buy their support for the nuclear posture review, to buy uh, their support for where they were going. So is RRW really dead, or is it still lurking in the system somewhere? I mean, the, the problem that Steve is talking about here, the was a program that uh, that was being pursued in the in the previous administration, and there there are multiple dimensions to it. So it's it's hard to answer kind of in a yes or no way: is RRW dead or not dead? What is dead is uh, any pursuit of new nuclear capabilities. Uh, we are not trying to build bunker busters or low yields or, or different kinds of nuclear weapons. What is not dead is that we are committed to maintain the reliability of our existing. Uh, nuclear arsenal. And there are a variety of techniques that can be done in terms of refurbishment and the like, uh, some of which were elements of the RRW program. So to the extent that there are things in the RRW program that are consistent with our commitment not to have new nuclear capabilities or a new nuclear weapon, you know, I don't know, that's, it's a bit of an existential question as to how to answer you. But there is a clear line that has been drawn, it's very explicit in public, in the NPR, that we are not seeking new nuclear capabilities. But we're also clear that as long as we have nuclear weapons, it's in our interest and everybody else's interest to have them be safe and reliable. And safe is very important, too. I mean, that, one of the things that people haven't focused on in the whole RRW debate is that one of the primary reasons for dealing with the aging nuclear stockpile is because there are safety risks as these uh, weapons age. And we do want, um, both in terms of you know, just the, the safety of the, the guts and all that stuff, but also the safety in terms of our own nuclear lockdown obligations to make sure they can't be stolen and misused. There are safety features that we want to be able to develop over time um, that just meet our commitment to make sure that this doesn't inadvertently 
contribute to, to something bad. So that part obviously we're strongly committed to. It's part of why we have given additional money to the labs for this part of the, uh, uh, the safety and reliability mission, but there is no, there is a, a categorical commitment not for new nuclear capabilities. Gentleman right here. Not working. There it is. Alan Altman Aspen. Uh, is it the policy of this administration that the United States will not permit Iran to develop nuclear weapons? It is the policy of the United States uh, that Iran should not be allowed to develop a nuclear weapons capability. Did you use the word there, capability? That's uh, the word the president used, which is why it's the word I used. What? Here's a man who knows how to hold on to his job. <laughs> Sir. Uh, John Dibbs, Palo Alto. On the uh, peaceful side of the nuclear, uh, there was an article in the Financial Times, I think, last week. Finland has three plants under construction, 50, 70 percent over uh, budget. It seems like the biggest uh, problem for uh, nuclear going forward in terms of electricity is simply the economics, and certainly that's what killed it in part 30 years ago. What, are, what is this administration doing to try to figure out how to make these uh, plants affordable? I, I mean, I'm, I'm knowledgeable enough to be dangerous, but not knowledgeable enough to be informed on kind of the, the economics of civilian nuclear power. And we do have a significant increase in funding in DOE for civilian nuclear research. Um, there's a lot of debate about the economics. I don't know enough to, to be thoughtful about sort of where, where that debate is now, except to, to observe the fact that, notwithstanding these debates, that, that there, are, there are ambitious nuclear power programs globally. Uh, and so countries are clearly making the judgment that, um, that over the long term, these are good investments. You know, part of it, the difficulty in, in assessing it, of course, is the uncertainty about uh, energy pricing generally going forward. If you don't know what the price of carbon is going to be, then you don't know how... Um, nuclear energy or nuclear-generated uh, electricity will compare to coal-fired, gas-fired, and the like. And so there is a lot of um, exogenous variables that would affect the decision, but you have to make the decision now because these things have enormously long lifespans. So a little bit of this is you know, not just predicting what's the economics today, but if you really believe, as the president is strongly committed to, that we're talking about 70 to 80% reductions in carbon emissions by 2050, which is well within the lifespan of these new reactors, then and you try to project what it would take to get us to do that, that may change the economics and the civilian power. Let me uh, call on the Deputy Secretary's immediate predecessor in that job, uh, John Negron. This is always dangerous. It is no, dangerous. No, no, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks for the excellent presentation. You talked earlier about the underlying uh, security issues in the Middle East as having, uh, over time perhaps, a bearing on the question of the nuclear issue in the region, Iran, Israel, etc. I have a question regarding the, the context in Northeast Asia because I think uh, for uh, North Korea, uh, one of the real issues is not only normalization with us, but it's ultimately the question of peace uh, on the Korean Peninsula and, uh, to my way of thinking, also the issue of reunification, which... Uh, in the last administration, the previous Korean government kind of shied away from any sort of serious talk about that issue. But it's always seemed to me that if you could have 
unification and the resolution of these fundamental security issues a little more in the forefront of our agenda in dealing with North Korea, it might help better to cause a solution to fall into place. I'd be interested in your thinking on that issue. Well, th thanks, John. As always, it's a very thoughtful and, and I think accurate observation. I, there's no question that at, at the core, the North-South issues are the core of this problem. Uh, although, as you also know well, the North Koreans very often, and part of the reason we have a problem is they ignore the South and try to deal directly with the United States. And so we strongly agree that we need to channel the North to deal with the South. We're prepared to do our part. We recognize that there are issues between North Korea and the United States that need to be addressed. But the core of it is to get that North-South engagement. It is what was started, as you know, in 1992 with the North-South Declaration, which has more or less laid moribund for a long time. It did get caught up in the debates over the Sunshine Policy and whether the payments that the South gave to the North were, were appropriate or desirable and the like. But we would very much like to see going forward a re-engagement between the North and the South. Um, one of the things that hasn't gotten as much attention as deserved is President Lee of um, South Korea has called for a grand bargain um, to help resolve this issue, which we have supported. There is a path going forward uh, that includes a peace treaty, uh, North-South reconciliation, and all of that. And I think the fact that President Lee has been willing to put this out there, notwithstanding the fact that he's been vilified by the North and treated really enormously shabbily by, by them, um, is an indication that he certainly understands that. And I think clearly for the other parties in the region, an understanding about the future between the North and the South then creates a broader regional conflict. So I would hope, and again, what we're trying to do is create an environment where the North gives up on the strategy of provocation, reward, period of peace, new provocation, new reward, and basically say, look, there's only one path forward. The path forward is through diplomacy, negotiation, and engagement. And, and to have that has a core feature, the, the dialogue between North and South. Jim, if I could ask the flip side of John's question. At the time the 92 North-South uh, Accord was signed, it wasn't entirely clear whether or not, even if you had reconciliation, that North Korea would, would disappear because of the South's you know, rising economic power. Now the South is such a looming economic power, somewhere between the 11th and 9th biggest economy. It's hard to imagine if you had reunification that the North wouldn't view it as a way to oblivion, that they would just be rolled over. Could it be possible that what the North fears the most right now is, is reunification? You know, I think that's something the North and the South have to work out between the two of them. I mean, it's, it's, it's their, it's, it, in effect, that's it's their, their peninsula. It's, it's their peninsula <laughs> and it's their people. And they do, I mean, the one thing about Koreans that is very clear is they do see themselves as one people. This is not, you know, so at some level, there will have to be a coming together. Now, whether it's a confederation, a federation, there are a million different political solutions. <coughs> but there will have to be a coming together. This is a long, historically long, ethnically homogeneous community that has, still has strong ties, notwithstanding 60 years of estrangement uh, across the peninsula. You see this in the family reunification. So there is going to have to be some framework that brings the two together. And whether it's complete enosis or whether it's something that, that has just a broad you know, umbrella and, and very distinct polities, and whether that can last over time is something for the two sides to work out. I don't think this is for the United States to decide. Um, I think it is for the two Koreas to work. Okay, we have just a few more minutes. What we're going to do is take three quick questions in succession, and I'll let Jim pick which ones of these he's going to oh, evade no, and which ones not. he's going to answer. <laughs> <laughs> Gentlemen back here. Okay.
James Calloway. Quick question. You know, inherent in nuclear safety, it seems like, is the, the assumption of rational actors or rational players. But given the pronouncements of the North Koreans and their insular conditions and, of course, the president of Iran, do we, do we have any confidence in that, that we are actually dealing with rational players in this game? Great. And we'll take uh, – there was one right, right there, gentleman in the black there. Uh, Antoine von Achmal, Emerging Markets Management. Jim, uh, I just came back from a trip to, to China, and I had always assumed, and, and you have spoken about it, that the Chinese were very much involved in, in North Korea, willing partners, etc., uh, and uh, also that this, this investigation of this frigate was a slam dunk, if that's probably the wrong word to use. When I was in China, it, 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 the biggest surprise to me was that in, not in the people who deal with nuclear issues, but, but in the kind of Aspen-like group, if, if such a thing exists in China, that there, there were a lot of questions as to whether this was really true. And... Um, I just want to see what you felt uh, about that. Well, they're, they're both are questions about rationality and assumptions and, and how the lens through people see the world. And so one person's rationality is another's irrationality. What I would say is that I think that um, the North Korean leadership has a proceeds by logic. They have a, a, a view of the world and a prism through which they see it. We may disagree with it. And tend, in, in these closed autarkic societies, you know, they, it, it's a weird logic and it's a weird rationality, but it is still rational. And there's no, I have absolute confidence that that rationality includes regime survival. So in the sense that we've usually thought about the problem of nuclear weapons and the like, that's clear. I think that calculus is there. Unlike the concern with terrorists and others where you just have, you also have a rationality, but it's not, it's a nihilistic rationality. And so you have a different set of problems. With the Chinese, I mean, I think one of it is there's just everywhere. There's deep, there are deep suspicions, paranoias, narratives. I, as many of you know, served, as David said, as, as National Security, Deputy National Security Advisor in the Clinton administration during the bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. And, you know, I'm 100% sure that we didn't do it on purpose. And they're 100% sure that we did. And no amount of investigation, no amount of data, no amount of evidence is ever going to convince the Chinese that what we did. Um, our mutual friend and colleague, Tom Pickering, went to uh, China, tried to lay it out all for them in 1999, and it didn't matter. And the Chinese people, you could, I guarantee you, get 100% of all 1.4 billion Chinese people are confident that we did that. So there's a lot of the same problem here, is that there's just a deep suspicion. Why are they doing this? What's this all about? There's got to be something else behind it. And also, frankly, you know, understandable that why would the North Koreans do something as stupid as sinking the... Now, I have some theories about that, but... Um, so, it, I mean, it's, it's worrisome that we don't have more confidence and trust, but I, I think it, it's just... It's not surprising. And I think what we're seeing in the engagement with the Chinese leadership, which is, for us, the most important at this point, is they are much less focused on what happened and much more focused on what the consequences of what we do are. And so they would rather not ask the question about what happened. It's a little bit, just don't tell me, because they are so worried about the danger of further escalation on the peninsula. What we're trying to convince them is without some kind of clear signal from the UN that there's actually a greater da danger of escalation than if we keep silent. And I am 
cautiously optimistic as we sit here this morning that we will find a, a reasonably good outcome in New York on this. I'm afraid we're out of uh, time for questions. You dangled there at the end uh, the thought that you have some theories about what they were doing. Do you want to tell no, us what those no. were? <laughs> I didn't think so. We're out of time, David. We're it's out of time, it. boy. We're past time. Thank you very much. Appreciate your doing this. Thank you. Great to see you.